0: Well, thank you to our worship team. Great job today leading us in worship. Hey, take your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. That's over in the New Testament. It's about three quarters of the way through your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I started a sermon series a few weeks ago called Revival, Rekindling the Fire of Jesus. And really, um, uh, we spent the first two weeks over in uh, Chronicles in the Old Testament looking at kind of the prerequisite, the overview of revival. And over the next few weeks, we're going to drill down a little bit more on some very particular things. And today I want to preach on this subject. Are you safe or sure? Today will be one of the simplest sermons you'll ever hear me preach. I'm really going to ask you three questions today, which is not typically what I do in a sermon. But I'm going to ask you three questions and have you answer those just to yourself today. Because here's what I want to do. Uh, the first beginning place of revival is not with prayer, is not with holiness, is not with coming to church. It's with knowing for sure that you are a Christian. And so that's what I want to talk about today because did you know that a lot of people are just trying to be safe? Here's what I mean by that. Uh, they're, they're, they'll lump Jesus and good works and anybody that knocks on their door, they'll just try to put it all together Jesus and church membership, Jesus and serving, Jesus and doing something. Just hope they're safe when they die. Which is not what Jesus came for. Jesus came so we could be sure that heaven is our home. So I want to walk you through that today. And I want you to take a moment, some introspection. Please don't get up, move around doing that stuff if you can't help it. Because I want to, really the Lord to speak to your heart through this. Let me start off with where we are in America, right? Barna. It's a huge research organization, and uh, Arizona Christian University, they do this uh, 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 American worldview inventory every year, and they just did it at the end of 2020, and they always have a section on salvation and sin, and where they're they're doing the research with Americans on what we believe, and let me show you what example, for example, they found out what we believe. Only half of Americans believe they will experience heaven after they die, so about 54% of Americans Think that when they die, they will go to a place called heaven. Well, you dig a little deeper and we find out 15% don't know what will happen after they die. They're just, I guess, rolling the dice and hope something good happens at the end of life. Then you have 13% who said there is no life after death, kind of a fatalistic attitude to everything that you live, you die, and you go into nothingness. But then there's the group about one in 10 that expect to be reincarnated and probably uh, reincarnated over and over again into what we don't know. There's another 8% that believe they'll go to a place of purification and then get to go to heaven. So you got about half think that they're going to heaven when you die. You've got a, a good uh, 13% one or 15% uh, that really don't know what will happen. Some think there's no life after death. 8% think reincarnation. 8% think you'll go and be purified and then you'll go to heaven. And then you've got the good old 2% believe they'll die and go to hell, which is really not many people. I'm shocked there's that many people that are just willing to admit Where are you going when you die? And there's 2% of the world that goes, oh, I'm going to hell. There's no doubt about it. I'm I'm going to hell. So at least we got a little bit of self-awareness going on in America, not much, a little bit. Well, if you drill down a little bit even more, here's what you discover. That two in every three adults say that having some type of religious faith is more important than which faith a person aligns with. So this, this blows my mind. That two thirds of America believe in what we'd call the sincerity principle—that as long as you're sincere about your faith, you'll go to heaven when you die. So it doesn't really matter what faith it is, as long as you're sincere, and you can carry that in in uh, you know in debate terms, carry that to its logical extreme. And you, you 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 can't hold on to this theory, right? Because, uh, for example, you had like Heaven's Gate. Y'all remember them a couple of decades ago? They thought a UFO was flying over on the Haley Bop Comet and that uh, the, uh, the uh, they were going to pick them up. So they all committed mass suicide out in California. And uh, would you say, look, were they sincere? Without a doubt, they were sincere. They took their lives. But did that get them into heaven, believing in UFOs? Well, of course not. Of course not. But it's a dangerous belief in America that we think as long as you're sincere, you're okay. Well, how about this? Half of adults believe that if a person is generally good or does enough good things during their life, They'll earn a place in heaven while only one-third of adults disagree with that notion. So here's where we are again in America. Half of Americans believe that you can earn your way into heaven. We believe in the divine scales, right? That when we die, we're going to stand before a God of some sort and uh, that he's going to put all of our good on one side and all of our bad on the other side. And we just hope that there's enough good that outweighs the bad and he'll let us into heaven. Now, I won't ask you if you believe that or not because you say, well, preacher, nobody in this room believes that. Well you might be shocked because the majority of people who describe themselves as Christian, 52%, Except a works-oriented means to God's acceptance. Even more shocking, however, is that huge proportions of people associated with churches whose official doctrine says eternal salvation comes only from embracing Jesus Christ as Savior and not from being or doing good believe that a person can qualify for heaven by being or doing good. So here we are again. Hey, it's not them that believe that. It's us that believe that. Hey, I'm talking to the people in the room today. Don't think this sermon, I'm preaching to who's not here. I'm preaching to who is here. 50% of the people in all probability in this room think that your good works factor into whether or not you're going to heaven, and and they proved it. That includes half of adults associated with Pentecostal movement, half of the adults associated with mainline Protestant, and 41% of evangelical churches, large percent of Catholics. Here's the deal. We're, we would call ourselves, maybe maybe not, but in the, in the world's classification of churches, we'd be an evangelical Baptist church even in, because we believe the gospel of Jesus. But listen, nearly half the people in our churches, that's, that's PIVA, right? PIVA. You say, oh... Preacher, that can't be true. Can I tell you there's a reason Billy Graham said years ago that the greatest mission field in the world are the pews of our churches, the people sitting in the pews of our churches? That we have this mentality that we somewhere in life were just trying to cover all of our bases and we were going to join the church and we were going to get baptized and we were going to walk down the aisle and we were going to sign a card and we've literally done everything there is to do except put put our faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Here's what we learned is that the long and short of it is that we're very confused about the afterlife. We don't know how we're getting to heaven, but we think we're going there. We don't know if there's a hell, but we don't believe we're going. We don't know about you, but we don't think we're going there when we die. Theologically, we don't know what we believe. We don't have any good proof of what we believe. And really, here's what a, people, a lot of people in our churches are doing. We're just holding on and hoping it works out for us in the end. It's the average person out there. By the way, it's the average person in here. And the average Evangelical Baptist church. We are no more informed on heaven than the next guy. So let me be very plain with you and be very direct. This is not what Joel believes. This is exactly what the Bible teaches, of which really there's no argument. Jesus said this in John 14:6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's it. Now let me explain that to you. The gospel is this. It is not belief in Jesus plus your ability to live it. It is not your belief in Jesus plus your good works. It is not your belief in Jesus and trust in him plus your church membership plus you serving plus what grandma did plus what daddy did. It's none of that. It is your belief in Jesus Christ, your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone that gets you to heaven. As a pastor, I, over the years, I, I thought about this a minute ago, I've been at the altar in, in leading somebody to faith in Christ who walked down the aisle after a sermon. I've heard, I've heard people pray a prayer like this, Dear Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd come into my heart and save me and that you'd give me the ability to live it. And I always say this, whoa, whoa, let me just say this. Let me interrupt that prayer. Let me say this. Your ability to live it has nothing to do with your salvation. right? You don't even worry about that until you do get saved because you can't live it without being saved. So, I want to personalize this for us. Let me talk to the room, okay? How confident are you in your belief on how to get to heaven? Furthermore, how confident are you in your belief that you are going to heaven? I want you to do me a favor. In your, in your chair, when you sit down, there's a card. Would you put that card in your hand? Would you get a pencil, a marker? some sort. We're going to do something with that card throughout this service. Would you would you put that card in your hand and get some kind of pen, marker, something? There's some in the back of the chairs there. Um, and here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm going to ask you, I don't want you to look at the person's card. I don't want you to look at your wife's. I don't want you to look at your husband's. I don't want you to look at your mom and dad's or your kids. I, w- I want you to be zeroed in on you, okay? On you. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down what percentage. You are sure that you're going to heaven, right? Like, are you about 50% sure you're going to heaven? Are you about 10% sure? Are you 75? Are you 100% sure you're going to heaven? If you were to die, the world were to end today, Jesus come back, whatever happened, what percentage are you sure that you're going to heaven? I want you to spend just just a second thinking about it. Do you write down a percentage and then you stick stick that card in your Bible and hold on to it for a moment? See, there's some of you in here today, you're just honest. You're like, preacher, I'm about half sure. I don't know. Some of you, some of you wrote down 99. By the way, I'm not taking those cards up. That's for you. We're going to do something with them in a moment. But uh, some of you wrote down, you're 99% sure. Can I tell you, you can't go through life 99% sure you're going to heaven when you die. Jesus didn't come to the cross, leave heaven, come to earth, be born of a virgin, live a human life, live a perfect human life, die on the cross, suffer for you, rise again, go to heaven, come back so you can be kind of sure you're saved. He came so you could be 100% sure. And can I say this? We want to have revivals as a church. Some of us don't need revival. Some people need Bible. We need to get it the first time around. We don't need the re, we need the original thing. So let me talk to you, because it's going to be a hard sermon for you, because there's some of you here today, this terrifies you, this bothers you, this upsets you, this brings anxiety in your life, and what scares you more than dying and going to hell is doing something about it. You're afraid of what people are going to say, you're afraid of what the preacher's going to think, or your husband, or your wife, or your mom, or your dad, or your kids. Can I tell you this? That is all a trick of the enemy, of the devil, to keep you lost and on your way to hell. All, so I need you to take a minute and let it go let it go just listen to the word of God today and let it go look in your Bible 2nd Corinthians chapter 13 Paul was dealing with that let me show it to you it's up on the screen but just look at it you, you can keep your seat he said number verse number five Paul said this test yourself to see if you're in the faith examine yourselves or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test test yourself examine yourself do not recognize Jesus Christ is in you hey let me walk you through that just for a moment now Paul is talking to the church here at Corinth now now He's given them what is a real test of Christianity. Now, you may not know much about the church at Corinth. There are two books written to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and here's what you need to know. The church at Corinth was a disaster. The church at Corinth was a mess. As a matter of fact, Paul starts off the book of Corinthians almost like this. He starts off like, uh, dear Corinthians, good Lord, can you not get your act together? I mean, that's about how it starts off. And it's, it's a church filled with sin. It's a church filled with wrongdoing. It's a church filled with, I mean, it was a crazy circus chaos mess. They couldn't do the Lord's Supper right. They, they couldn't preach right. They couldn't worship right. Their families were a disaster. Things I don't even want to say in public were going on in that church. And Paul has to deal with all of that. And Paul finally gets to the very end of the last book, in the last chapter of the book, and Paul says this, hey, the reason some of you are having a hard time living the Christian life is you may not be a Christian. So take the test. And can I say the reason some of you may not, may be having a hard time living the Christian life is you may not be a Christian. So let me ask you three questions today. Paul asked them, number one, are you on the inside looking out or are you on the outside looking out? What, what do you mean by that? Well, if you to know what it means to be saved, Paul describes it this way: that they were in the faith. Do yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you? Paul is describing what it means to be saved, and he said, "Being saved means you are in the faith; that Jesus Christ is in you. That if you are saved for sure, it means you are on the inside, looking out at a lost and dying world. That that you are." In the family, that you are in the faith, that you are in the church, that you are in the body of Christ. It means that the spirit of God lives in you and he has placed you in the faith. And that with that being placed in the faith, Paul says this, there ought to come a recognition both internally and externally that you are in the faith. Now he uses the word right here, do yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you? Now the word in the Greek is epignosos, it means uh, to know fully. It means to become fully acquainted with or to be fully aware. So Paul says this, here's the deal. If Jesus Christ is in you, if Jesus Christ lives in you, hey, there's no way you don't know that. That you will be fully aware, recognition that Christ is in you. One commentator said this, and it impacted me so much, I wanted to show it to you. He said this, we should examine whether we be in the faith because it is a matter in which we may be easily deceived. Now hold on. I, I'm not on a time crunch at eleven, so I'm gonna give you all the long version of the sermon. All right. How we easily deceived? Here's how we easily deceived. Because you know what happens? We, we're we're in. We're we're not in the faith. Hey, listen, but we're in the church. We might not be in the faith, but we're in the vicinity, right? Like we know all the language. We know when to stand up, when to sit down, when to be quiet, when to talk. We know where the nursery is and kids' church. and when we, know this, we know the church. And that confuses us and deceives us. And he said, whether and we're in a deceit is highly dangerous. We are therefore concerned to prove our own selves, to put the question to our own souls, whether Christ be in us or not, so that either we are true Christians or we are great cheats. And what a reproachful thing it is for a man not to know himself, not to know his own mind. Now, here's what he said. It is, we're easily deceived and highly dangerous. Well, why highly dangerous? Because you're playing with your eternal soul. You don't get a second chance. He said, it's easy to be deceived when you're in church every Sunday, when you're hanging around preaching, when you're hanging around church, it is easy to be deceived, but you're playing a very dangerous game, my friend, because it is your eternal soul you're playing with. Here's what he was trying to tell us, that if you are in the faith, you will know it. You'll recognize it. You'll be aware. You will be on the inside looking out at a world that desperately needs Christ and you'll have heart and compassion for that. Too many people are sitting here this morning and on the outside looking in and you're here but you're wishing you had what somebody else had. You're wishing you knew what they knew. You're wishing that you were as excited about Jesus as what they were. You'd give anything if the Bible spoke to you. You'd give anything if you thought your prayers were being answered. You'd give anything if you had the peace and the freedom and the assurance of eternity that other people have. Have! That's because you're on the outside looking in. The problem is you are not in the faith, so you don't have what they have. And there's no way, listen to me, Paul said you can recognize it because there is no way something so amazing as a holy God can come live in your life and you don't recognize it and it not change your life and it not register with you. The spirit of the living God lives in me. Daniel said I like sports this morning. He made that comment because uh, I only talk about sports every sermon, not not every other. So I want to be clear about that. But there's just so many things I use there. And I saw this, that this... Just a couple weeks ago it was the ten year anniversary of uh, one of the most amazing things in the NFL. Now, if you if you don't care about football, hey, hang with me anyway because the end of the story has nothing to do with football. All right, but let me let me set it up and show it to you. Ten years ago, the Beast Marshawn Lynch on second and ten in a playoff game against the New Orleans Saints, who had won the Super Bowl uh, the year before, uh, Marshawn Lynch was handed the ball. And he ran, uh, for, broke a dozen tackles and ran for a touchdown that literally shook the stadium. And uh, the play, you don't care about this, but I find it f- fascinating. The play was called 17 Power, and it had been in their playbook all year long, and they'd never ran it all season. You know why they'd never ran it all season? Because they couldn't do it. Uh, uh, Matt Hasselbeck said they messed it up in practice. They couldn't get it right. And Marshawn Lynch kept saying, I want to run the play. I want to run the play. And f- so finally, on second and 10, Marshawn talked them into running the play, and they ran the play, and guess what? They still didn't get it right. They said every blocker blocked the wrong person, went the wrong way. Marshawn Lynch ran the wrong way. But yet this happened. Watch this. Crowd silent now as opposed to when the Saints have the ball. Oh, look at this run. What a run. Marshawn Lynch still oh. on his feet. Has blockers now. He's dancing his way for the touchdown. Oh. That's as good an effort as I've ever seen in my life from a running back who they traded for from Buffalo. Downhill, physical, and down the field, you're going to see Matt Hasselback and the whole offensive line. Watch him cut it back. And you're going to see all kinds of people sprinting down the field to help him. He breaks the tackle of Shanley, runs through Sharper, runs through Adele, runs through Jabari Greer. Get off me, he says to Tracy Porter. Look all the way down the field, Hasselbeck, all the offensive linemen. Are you kidding me? Oh, I love watching that. I watch that a hundred times a day. Oh, Tracy Porter got that stiff arm, and man, he's immortalizing history, and he's posterizing the wrong side of a stiff arm. But that's amazing. But here's, I know you don't care about football. Hang with me. Hang with me. A guy named John Vidal watched the play on YouTube about an hour after the game was over. John Vidal happened to be the director of the Pacific Northwest Seismic Network. In other words, he measured earthquakes in the Pacific Northwest. That was his job. He said, man, the stadium was loud, a lot of jumping up and down. You heard, I, I wanted you to show the video because I want you to hear how loud the stadium was when he scored the touchdown. So he got in the car and drove to his office and he checked the seismic reading and here's what he discovered. When, when Marshawn scored the touchdown, the fans jumping up and down in celebration Registered seismic activity on the seismograph. In other words, they caused a man made earthquake. It's the only one that we know of in history. Definitely the only one by a football game. A man made earthquake because of a run on second and ten. And why do you tell us that, preacher? Here's why I tell you that. Because I need you to get that image in your mind that when something so earthly and so fleshly as a football game and a touchdown run, if it registers so people felt the shaking on the ground from miles around, here's what I want to tell you. That is exactly a small microcosm of what ought to happen when Jesus Christ comes to live in your heart and life at salvation. It is like a Jesus quake going off in your life, and it will register. And you will recognize it. When Jesus came to live in your life, it has that same effect. And when, he, when you get saved, he's going to shake up your world. And he's going to change the way you talk. And he's going to change the way you live. And he's going to change the way you act. And he's going to change the way you love. And he's going to change the way you think. A Jesus quake will rumble your world. You say, that's never happened to me. And if it doesn't happen to you on a regular basis... You may be on the outside looking in because there's no way a holy God can come into your life and not make a difference in your life. There's no way a holy God can come into your life and not shake you up and you not recognize it. So now let me ask you, where does that leave you this morning? Look at that percentage that you wrote down. Some of you wrote down 100% and you need to back it up a percentage of it too. Some of you wrote down 90% and you need to back it up because Jesus has never made that change in your life. Second question you have to ask yourself is this Where is all the evidence? Because Paul said to do this, he said, Test yourself. And examine yourself. Test yourself is a morally neutral word. It doesn't have anything to do with right or wrong. It's just literally a word that means test. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Matthew 4, 1, the Bible says that uh, the devil tempted him. It's the same word, t- a Greek word, tested him, tempted him. It just means to put to the test, uh, to see what the response is. And then he says, examine yourself. It's a very similar word in the Greek, not exactly the same word, but very sim- similar. It means to prove, to put to the test, to, uh, I love this definition, to verify. To verify yourselves. To see, it literally means to make sure something is genuine and trustworthy. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, how do I test myself? Well, here's the thing. You are being tested every day of your life. See, the devil is going to test you. The world is going to test you. Your own flesh is going to test you. Your family is going to test you. Your friends are going to test you. Your problems are going to test you. Your temptations are testing you. Your annoyances, all of that. They're all testing you every day. Here's all Paul's asking you to do. Paul is trying to tell you, hey, you are being tested. Here's what Paul wants you to do. Examine the evidence. Right? It's not about a test. The tests are happening all the time. Paul said examine the evidence after the test. Analyze the evidence. You are taking the test. Here's what Paul's literally saying in this. You just you grade your own paper. You remember doing that in high school or somewhere Well, they couldn't trust you by high school? Remember doing that in grammar school? Grade your own paper? Didn't let high schoolers do that. But grade your own paper, right? You remember that? That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying grade your own paper. Like you look at the evidence that you can only be rewarded by looking at the evidence of your salvation. Because can I tell you? You know, who we our, you know who we lie to more than anybody? Ourselves. And when you're worried about your salvation, when you're not sure, you will continue to heap lies up to yourself about your salvation before you really examine the evidence. And here's what Paul's saying. Test yourself, examine yourself, verify yourself here. Go line by line and just see what is the evidence telling me. You, you, you won't recognize this guy. I read this story. It's so fascinating that uh, how many of you remember Netscape web browser? Anybody remember Netscape web browser? Yeah, about five of us. Okay, so um, Netscape web browser is like kind of the first one. They launched something in 1995 called the Bug Bounty Program, which is they went out and paid hackers to try to hack. Really, they were paying hackers before hacking was cool back in the day. And they were, you know, try to, Hack their system to see if they could find problems with it, but now everybody does it. Microsoft, Uber, Verizon, YouTube, Apple, they all they all pay hackers, they call them ethical hackers, and they'll pay them money if they can find a line in their code with this guy's named Santiago Lopez. Now I need you to get really good with yourself because Santiago's 20 and he just made a million dollars as an ethical hacker online, a million dollars. What are you doing with your life, right? million dollars, 20 years old? years old. You say, well, I'm sure he's like an MIT grad. No, he he lives in Buenos Aires, and he taught himself to hack on YouTube. No lie. No formal education at all. Just made a million bucks. First, first bounty he got was $50. The largest one he got was 9000 and at 20 years old, he's made a cool million dollars, working six to seven hours a day. And if you read about his story, here's what you discover. Lopez goes Line by line in the code, looking for evidence of hacking that can be exploited. And it's kind of what Paul was telling us to do in 2 Corinthians. He was saying, here's all you got to do. Just examine the evidence. You're taking the test all day long. Here's what you do. Go line by line in your life. And what does the evidence say? Go situation by situation. Go decision by decision. Paul's really trying to tell us, just hack your life. Hack your life. See where the evidence takes you. Is there enough evidence to show you're safe? Listen, you'll see it. The people around you'll see it. It cannot be hidden. Where does all the evidence say? Because the evidence will say one or two things. Either that you are a Christian or you're not a Christian. If you're always losing to the devil, if you're always losing to the world, if you're always losing to your flesh, if you can't do right in your family, if you can't do right, listen, I'm telling you, the evidence is pointing in the wrong direction. And there are people in church every Sunday that really all the evidence leads you to believe you're lost, but you can keep it, you can keep a good front-facing mask. So take a minute and examine the evidence. What does it say and then third question I want to ask you is this same one Paul asked number three do you pass or do you fail Paul said this unless you fail the test right so now it's time for a decision some of you here and you feel like an outsider in church though you come every Sunday because you see people raise their hands in worship, you you hear people get excited about Jesus, you hear them talking about their Bible and prayer and all that, and it just doesn't do that for you. And it it could be because you're on the outside looking in. It probably is. But then when you go line by line through your life, you see maybe it's not that you're saved and having a hard time living the Christian life. Maybe it is that you're not saved and the Christian life is impossible. When I go line by line by line by line. And Paul said, after you do that, just ask yourself, be honest. You, you, listen, you don't, I don't need you to be honest with me. I need you to be honest with you. Do you pass or do you fail? Close your Bibles I'm finished. Can I, can I tell you a little boy story when I was a little boy? I was a little boy. I was about in second grade and, and uh, we lived in a small house. I had a carport. And, uh, of course, on the left side of the carport was the house, the front, you know, the car, But in the back and on the right-hand side, it was lined with brick that was the same color of our house brick, and it was about two, three rows, depending on how level it was, two or three rows of brick. And one year, I was about second grade, I got, I don't think it was Fisher-Price, but it was like a Fisher-Price tool set, right? Right. And so it was, it was heavier duty than a Fisher price, but, but it was Christmas or birthday or something. And, and it had like a heavy, pretty heavy hammer in it, you know, for a second grader. And it had a couple of screwdrivers and it had a pair of pliers and it had a hacksaw, a, a hacksaw. Second grade. And I had a saw. It was on the porch one day and, uh, being unsupervised which was always a little dangerous with me and and I, I got to wondering it had perforated edges on it and I got to wondering what if this could really saw anything it never never crossed my mind to walk across the street into the woods and try to saw a tree I looked at the brick and I thought I wonder if it saw a brick now I, to my credit I didn't try to saw the actual brick I decided to try to saw the mortar in between two bricks so I put the hacksaw on it and I pushed down and sure enough it scored the mortar I thought, wow, I wonder if that messed the saw up. Let me try it one more time. And I pushed again, and it cut it a little deeper. And I pushed again, and it cut a little deeper. And I thought, well, I wonder if it will cut all the way through. And I just kept sawing, and it cut all the way through the mortar down to the next line of bricks. I thought that's pretty cool. And I thought, well, if it will cut one, I wonder if that was just weak mortar. This is all scientific experiments. I wonder if that was just weak mortar. I wonder if it'll cut the other side of the brick where the mortar is. And so I put the saw and I sawed it. And I said, well, in my mind, I'm thinking that could be just a bad batch of mortar. Let me just go down the line. And in a few moments, I had basically sawed off all of the bricks on the top side of our carport. And they were just laying out in the, I was proud of myself. They were laying out everywhere. Him, Joel, the tool time, whatever. And, and so I know some of you are thinking, I know some of you, you have girls and you don't know. If you have a boy and he's not in second grade yet, you got to know this stuff just makes sense to us. Uh, it, now, looking back on it, makes no sense. Five minutes after I did it, made no sense. In the moment, it was the most scientific thing that needed to be done on earth at the time was me that saw the brick. And I had bricks scattered everywhere. And then the thought crossed my mind, uh-oh, daddy's coming home. So I semi panicked, and I, I got all the bricks, and I, I, I put them back the best I could get them back. But you, funny thing, when you saw that mortar, I swept the carport like I got the mortar that I'd sawed off. Like I swept, and I put the bricks back. I mean, but it was—I mean, I thought I'd covered it up best I could covered up. And so I basically put the bricks back, threw the toolbox away, went in the house and did something else, and prayed. <laughs> Heard a car pull up into the driveway, and Dad had been home a grand total of. 20 seconds and I heard Joel get out here now and I walked outside and he said what why why did you saw all the bricks off the carport I was incredulous what made him think I had done that (laughs) like that's probably the neighbor's kid I got a sister three years younger than me you can't trust her she don't turn your back on her daddy what do you think it's me And and he basically said this, I'm paraphrasing. Um, As we were talking next steps, he basically said this. My counselor says, don't talk about next steps yet, because I'll save that. But dad Dad said, uh, because son, all of the evidence points towards you. And he just ran down a list, line by line. He was right about all of it. I'm not as good at covering up stuff as I thought. And here's what I'm asking you to do this morning. Put your second grade mind in and quit trying to fool yourself and quit trying to deceive yourself. And would you just go line by line at the evidence in your life? Are you saved? I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Would you take that card back out that you wrote the percentage on originally? And again, please, every head bowed, Every act, nobody looking around. Would you take that card out? I don't know what percentage you wrote on it earlier, but I, I want you to do this. There's a second line on there. Having heard what Paul said, would you now go back and write, How sure are you that you're saved? Some of you backed off from 100, some of you backed off from 75, some of you backed off from 50. Can I tell you, anything less than 100 needs to be dealt with today. Anything less than 100. And I know your reservations, can I tell you this? I got saved in church after I was already a church member. That's my testimony. I'll tell it to you sometime, but. I was already a church member and got saved after I was a church member. I I understand the anxiety with getting saved, being in church, but there's no church roll call in heaven. There's only those whose names are written in the Lamb Book of Life, and you don't get written in the Lamb Book of Life by trusting Jesus and anything else. Is Jesus and Jesus alone? Some of you walked the aisle when you are a kid and you're not—you didn't really get saved. You went with a friend. Some of you made a decision as an adult, but you didn't really trust Jesus. I'm not trying to talk you into being lost. I'm trying to tell you, you there, there are people in the room that are lost. And look, set aside all the anxiety and all the stress and all the worry. Jesus is calling and wants to save you today. So every head bowed, every eye closed. If I've ever said that and you've listened, please listen now and nobody look up. Let's start here. How many of you would say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, Preacher, I am 100% sure that when I die, I'm going to heaven. No doubt about it. I'm going. If you're 100% sure, not 1% less. If you're 100% sure, would you just slip your hand up and hold it up? Just testimony to Jesus. I can't see them all, but hands all over. I right, put them down. Now, now let's get serious for a moment. Nobody looking. Please be honest with yourself. Please be honest. I'm not going to call you out, embarrass you, not do anything. How many would say this, preacher, I am not 100% sure I'm going to heaven when I die. I'm not. I heard the sermon today. I just, I'm not. I I could tell you the story, preacher. I don't need to hear the story, but uh, preacher, I am not. And I'm not going to see you. I I won't even hardly see your hand because of the lies, but I want you to admit it to yourself and admit it to God. How many of you would say, preacher, I am not 100% sure I'm going to heaven when I die. If that's you, you're not. Would you slip your hand up and just hold it up? Just hold it up. Slip it up. Thank you. Somebody else? Thank you. Preacher? I am not 100% sure. Thank you for that hand. Somebody else, preacher? I'm not 100% sure. I'm not. I know there are other hands I couldn't see, but listen. There is no more important decision. If you're here today, whether you had the courage to raise your hand or not, I, I want to help you. Be, I want to lead you in a prayer. Prayer won't save you. Some of you know this prayer. You hear me say it every week because you're in church every week, but you've never really trusted Jesus yourself. And listen, I am going to be honest with you. There there are no secret disciples with Jesus. Some of you are sitting in your pew right now and you're thinking, well, I'm going to pray the prayer, but I'm not going to tell anybody. It doesn't work that way. The Bible says, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. And I don't exactly know all that means, but I know I don't want to be in that position when I die. No, you're going to pray and ask Jesus to save and you're going to acknowledge it somehow. I'll give you some ways in a moment. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. But if you'd like to trust Jesus today and know 100% that Christ is in your life and heaven is your home, pray something like this. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I want to be 100% sure. And I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin, that he rose again after three days. And that if I invite you into my life, you'll save me. So Lord, just now, I ask Jesus to come into my heart and life, to save me, to give me a home in heaven. And I trust you and you alone. Have you just prayed that prayer, you are born again if the intent of your heart was to trust Jesus. Here's what I'm going to ask you today. I'm going to ask you to slip out from the aisle in just a moment when we sing. Walk down the aisle. There's staff on the right and left of me standing at a little table that says next steps and go there and tell them the decision you made. Maybe you want to join our church. Maybe you want to move your membership here. Maybe you still have questions about being saved. They're prepared to answer all those questions for you about salvation, membership, baptism. Just go there and tell them. Now I wonder this morning how many of you would say Preacher, I, I know I'm going to heaven, but I have got some people I love deeply and care about that I'm worried about whether or not they're going to heaven. And I want to lift them up to Jesus today. If you got somebody you love and care about, would you just raise your hand and say, Preacher, I don't know where they're going, I don't know where they're going. Can I implore you to do this? Can I implore you who raised your hand just now when we sing, find a place in the altar and do what we call intercessory prayer. That is you stand between them and heaven and you beg God to save them. Beg God to convict their heart. Here's what I always pray. Lord, make them miserable until they look up to you. Look up to you. If you love them, that's an easy thing to do today. So would you stand with me? Heads bowed and eyes closed. Nobody looking around. Our team's gonna sing. If you want to be saved, join our church. Tell somebody you got saved. Hey, our staff's here at the front. If you want to pray for somebody who needs to be saved, first verses, do it. Father, draw us with your spirit. You have spoken to us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray.